Everybody, welcome to a very special episode of the Not A Rabbi podcast. This is season three, episode two. And with me, I have a special guest. But before we get to that and talk about burying the lead, we are going to just go through some topics that I wanted to bring up because I thought that they were interesting. Anyhow, the first imp- first issue is something that was very interesting to me, and that was the topic of DC's DC Comics' first Jewish superhero in 40 years. This is an article from jewishrenaissance.org.uk. Never heard of the site before. That really doesn't mean anything. This is an inter- a 16-year-old named Willow Zimmerman, a.k.a. Whistle. She is a crime-fighting teenager and the newest member of the Batman universe. And she is the first Jewish superhero that DC has introduced in four decades. I'm not going to go through it because uh, she's on the streets protesting City Hall's neglect of her rundown Gotham neighborhood, Down River, former all-Jewish district based on New York's Lower East Side, uh, which anybody who's been to New York and has visited the Lower East Side, you'll have an idea of what I'm talking about. Or if you're in New York and you know the Lower East Side, you still know what I'm talking about. But anyhow, that that is the new character. Now, what I thought about this as soon as I saw this, and this is actually something I've uh, written about on my now defunct blog, and I have uh, talked about uh, other places, uh, like our Judaism on Reddit, is that this is not the first uh, first Jewish superhero in 40 years. Uh, they had a couple of others. Now, I guess that the... Um, you know, the one that I thought of automatically was a character named Ragman, who had a, which was kind of based off of the Golem of Prague story. And if we don't know the Golem of Prague story, we will take that on an aside and go ahead and talk about that at a different time. If, uh, if anybody wants me to talk about that, it's a very interesting situation there. Anyway, the Golem was this big big clay figure and uh so apparently rabbi yehuda Lowy, who was the rabbi at the time and he had supposedly created the golem and what happened was he decided uh that they needed something that was more man-made or man-driven i guess you could say and he created this thing made out of ra- uh, this suit made out of rags which was sort of alive and it sucked in the souls blah be blah uh you could take a look at um, there's actually a Ragman limited series, 12-issue run from the 90s, which is what I read to get myself familiarized with myself with the co- uh, with the character when I was uh, when I was reading comics back in the day. So I I don't know if this is a a big thing. Uh, I still think that they should make Kitty Pride a little bit more Jewish instead of uh, doing what they've done to her. But uh, I will leave it author who came up with this uh, was inspired by our own secular Jewish heritage and the concept of repairing the world, a concept called Tikkun Olam, which is a Jewish thing. Um, and I will not get into that right now. We might talk, uh, talk about that a little bit later. But this was something that was I thought was interesting. I, I think that there need to be, I, I will ma- continually make the, uh, make the call out to have a Orthodox Jewish 
character who is a superhero as well. Uh, I had a friend in high school that actually made one uh, by the name of Bark Barf Pukeman. Don't judge. We were teenagers, okay? Uh, so he <laughs> has very interesting superpowers. I'll just leave it at that. And uh, but we need to have one of those. I think that just in for this, everybody else has a superhero. Why can't the Orthodox Jews have one as well? Uh, I'd like to see it. I'm sure it'll never happen unless uh, somebody wants to hit me up and I'll write the story and they can do the art. That's the only way that that's going to happen. The next thing that we're going to talk about is playing our favorite game of is it anti-Semitism? And that is the Google that Google is parting has parted ways with a cloud VP after his manifesto renouncing his anti-Semitism. And this is an article from CNBC. You can take a look at it. Uh, all the links, God willing, hopefully, will be in the show notes. And he um, basically said a bunch of things. He basically said uh, at, in this uh, where he did not or renounced his anti-Semitism. Some of the people that I work with are Jews, and therefore, and I made a mistake. What is interesting about this is that the individual found that he has, he is one-tenth of a percent Ashkenazi Jewish. So he is using this as basically cover, saying all my people, all my friends are Jewish, or and I'm Jewish, so I could say these things. Not only that, apparently there were some issues with him and going ahead and... Um, being a jerk of a boss is what it really equals out to, is he was a jerk of a boss, and therefore people didn't like him, and they're using this as a lot of cover, it sounds like, as well for this, uh, oop, there goes my phone, for this, uh, for this little issue. But another one is uh, an interesting topic, as we know from last week, Ben and Jerry, Ben and Jerry's. Uh, everybody likes their ice cream mostly. I certainly like their ice cream. Uh, I am quite a fan of the Americone dream that uh, they have for Stephen Colbert. I also am a fan of Cherry Garcia, uh, chocolate chip cookie dough. Um, I am a man of varied taste, as you can tell. Anyhow, they decided that they are no longer going to supply Israeli stores that are in the West Bank with ice cream. And they're, but they will continue supporting and selling to the, the Palestinian stores. This created a great uproar. People wanted to boycott Ben & Jerry's. Some people may be uh, boycotting Ben & Jerry's because of this. And the interesting thing is that the organizations who certify Ben & Jerry's for being kosher, and I believe uh, that it is... Oh, no, there we go. It is an organization called the KUFK, or the KUFK, as we, uh, for those of us that can make that pronunciation. And what this is, is basically one of the large, big four kosher certification organizations. And they are being pushed, supposedly, or trying to be pushed, to now start denying the certification of Ben and Jerry's because of this. And, uh, you know, there is an article in the Jewish Forward, um, which is, eh, it's an interesting publication, uh, web publication these days. They have not 
been publishing for a while and they went ahead and they were saying that the certification should be pulled from Ben and Jerry's because of this or actually they shouldn't it shouldn't well let me rephrase that that's what a lot of people are saying um, however the forward is making the making the comment that uh, this should not be the case with cert certifi certification of kosher kosher uh, kosher products I happen to agree with them on this that this is not something that should be uh, should be done uh, young Riprock in the chat makes a comment isn't isn't it more important that kosher customers know whether the food is kosher yes exactly that is exactly the Jewish forwards point that is exactly my point as well that is what Jewish kosher organizations and kosher kosher certification is all about. It is about knowing whether or not the product is kosher, not whether or not you are hitting certain ideals politically. And this is uh, something that some kosher organizations deal with in ways, uh, whether or not the organization, or not the organization, but the uh, restaurants mostly are Shabbos observant. Um, there was a restaurant that was opened a couple of years ago by by the name of Jezebel they had gotten a lot of flack for certain posters photos that they had up in the up in the uh, up in the restaurant people didn't like it I don't know and they they actually they they had the uh, their certification revoked because of this I thought it was completely wrong and silly you know that is sometimes how the game goes i think it is ridiculous now on, on the other hand i'll be fair on the other hand they there was a situation with a restaurant which i will not name the only reason i named jezebel is i think that it's out of business uh, but there is a situation with a place that i will not name because it is still open that lost a certification because they were open on a shabbos for a specific reason and there was cooking going on which is something that Shabbos laws do not allow and therefore that was a major problem and you know I kind of agreed on that case I kind of agreed with the organization the certification organization for pulling their certification and I had stopped going there for, the, for, for a time uh, they wound up getting some new certification which is also a respectable certification I think it's under new management as well so uh, all is good in the world. Uh, my, we actually wound up taking my daughter there for her 21st birthday, uh, where the only person to buy a drink was me. Just, just saying. Uh, but that is the interest, interesting stuff about that. I will have some more talk regarding regarding the uh, Jewish baseball players a little bit late, uh, probably in the next episode because I lost the link for that that I really wanted to talk about because it went into some of the particulars of Jewish law regarding playing on Shabbos. So I thought that that would uh, be interesting to discuss maybe. So we're going to, you know, see about discussing that at a later date. Hopefully if I could find my links because, uh, yeah, that's what happens sometimes. Links stink. Um, okay. Uh, Young Riprock also asks the question in the chat, is certification binding 
on an observant person. So if you know it's kosher with no certification versus someone is, this is actually an interesting question uh, with regard to being kosher and keeping with and kosher certifications, which we may want to open up to another show, another episode. Uh, with regard to kosher certifications, I, if you take a look back in the archives, we do have a show on keeping kosher, but not on a commercial level. That is a tough question. Now, what I would say is that I would, I would recommend always making sure that there is somebody doing spot checks, and that is one of the things that the rabbis do, or these kosher certification companies do, is that they have a they do spot checks. So they'll walk in totally unannounced and they will go ahead and see if everything is kosher, if everything is good. Um, Another thing is, and this is something that people talk about with vegan vegan restaurants, is, hey, what's wrong with a vegan restaurant? You know, it's all vegan stuff. Uh, Problems are vegetables. A lot of times vegetables need to be checked very well for bugs that might be in there because... uh, you know, bugs a lot of times are not kosher. Not a lot of times, all the time, but they are not kosher. And so that is something that they want to prevent. And a lot of times the rabbi will go ahead and be the one to check the lettuce or check the other leaf, leafy types of vegetables that there are, um, cauliflower lots of times. So there are a lot of things that go into it. So having that kosher certification is very, very good. Now, on the other hand, just because you have the kosher certification, that doesn't mean that things are going to always go well. Uh, there have been, unfortunately, lots of cases with regard to butchers specifically where they were buying non-kosher chickens and selling those non-kosher chickens as being kosher, and that created lots and lots of issues for the uh, for the whole thing, and it's uh, it, it was not a good scene in a certain location. Again, I am not going to uh, get into the particulars on that uh, unless hey, maybe we'll do that a little bit later uh, for another show. But that is that is it about the about the kosher certification stuff, which I found interesting. And like I said, I don't believe that an organization should be punished for not having the proper political point of view you know honestly i'm disappointed in ben and jerry's for for this does that mean i'm going to stop buying ben and jerry's i'm probably not going to stop buying ben and jerry's uh although i've been hitting up the carvels more often than going to ben and jerry's because their ice cream is fresher but that is a different story special guest are you ready and with me is my special guest. He is a partner at Walker High in the Pacific Northwest. And that is Brett Urick. And Brett is now our official, not a rabbi, legal correspondent. Brett, welcome to the show. Aaron, thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, excited to uh, go over some of these cases. Okay. So I think the first thing that we need to talk about is an an explanation as to why these are not First Amendment cases. Sure. So we're going to go through three cases here today, and I think only one of them has a First Amendment um, uh, part to it. And so when we're looking at the protections from law or that come from 
law for religious practice, free exercise, uh, or conversely, uh, uh, anti-establishment, is we're going to be looking at um, different sources based on what and who is doing the uh, burden or uh, thing that is affecting uh, the religious practice. So at the top we have the United States Constitution. And so the First Amendment uh, protects a person's right to free exercise of their religion, and it also prohibits a state or state actor from establishing a religion. So therefore having a state religion, or depending on the circumstances, uh, doing something that furthers a religion or furthers religion in general. And then we're also going to have the 14th Amendment, which is one of the uh, civil rights amendments passed following the Civil War, which grant guarantees to everybody uh, equal protection as well as the privileges and immunities that uh, you would have as a citizen in regard to the federal government now also applies to the states. And with very few exceptions, these are limitations that are put on government. Um, government meaning that the state cannot do this to you, the county cannot do this to you, the federal government cannot do this to you. So in some of the cases that we'll be looking at here today, the person uh, or entity which is engaging in the um, discriminatory conduct or failing to accommodate is not a, a governmental actor. So in which case, we're not looking um, directly at what the United States Constitution provides. Um, but that's not the only protections that somebody has who's looking at um, what protections are afforded them for their religious activities. The other two main places we're looking at are federal statutes and then state statutes and then municipal statutes. Uh, and almost every, every municipality at this point has some form or fashion um, a anti-discrimination policy based on uh, what we call immutable characteristics, uh, race, sex, uh, religion, um, that sort of thing. So when we get into some of these cases, we're going to be looking a lot at uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is in regard to discrimination in employment. Um, and there's several other um, titles as to that, some of which protect education, uh, people receiving um, federal funds, public accommodations, etc. So, but as we get into some of these cases, we'll see that they're not really so much constitutional issues as uh, state and federal civil rights uh, statutes. Okay, cool. So basically, the difference you could say is not to put too fine a point on it, is that if it's related to something that the government is doing, whether it's a city government or it's a federal government, state government, whatever, then that is going to be considered under the First Amendment. Correct. That is, that is where you'll have the, the hierarchy of it. Note, however, that there are those federal statutes in regard to civil rights also apply to um, state governments, county governments, and even the federal government. So the federal government by statute can and has passed a rule that says it is illegal for it to discriminate against the person in their employment based on uh, race, sex, religion, ex uh, national origin, etc. So they can impose these right, these, these um, remedies and, and burdens on themselves too, which we'll see here.
Okay, so let's take a look at this first article. And this is from First Things, which, if I'm not mistaken, First Things, yeah, I mean, it's generally a Catholic um, publication. But they have here where several Orthodox Jewish residents of a New Jersey apartment building, all elderly, some handicapped, filed for federal lawsuit because their co-op board would not let the doorman press the elevator button for them on the Jewish Sabbath. So, Brett, why don't you take us through this a little bit? Sure. So, looking at this uh, article that you sent me, um, and then looking at the uh, complaint that was filed, uh, there was this policy at this condominium association where uh, on the Sabbath, there was they had the elevator set to, and then they had people who would push the buttons to go to the floor so that observant uh, Jewish people uh, would not have to... Um, undertake that task and then the co-op or condominium board decided that they wouldn't were going to get rid of that policy um, on what looked like be very spurious reasons saying that setting it the elevator to sabbath mode caused additional wear and tear but wouldn't wouldn't uh, explain further um, and so what these residents did is they brought claims for discrimination under the Fair Housing Act. And so the Fair Housing Act is one of those other um, federal statutes that protect people against discrimination. And so the two places we're looking at here is that the FHA makes it um, unlawful to discriminate against any person in the terms, conditions, or privileges of sale or rental of a dwelling or in the provision of services or facilities in connection therewith because of race, color, religion, sex, familial status, or national origin. And for the purposes of this subsection, discrimination includes a refusal to make uh, a reasonable accommodations in the rules, policies, practices, or services when they must may be necessary to afford the person with the equal opportunity for the use and enjoyment of the dwelling. So the, the gist of this um, claim is that they're saying that by having this policy and then removing it, uh, that they've done so in a, in a manner that discriminates against religion. And then also, even to the extent that they didn't previously have this a policy, by refusing to do so, that they are not reasonably accommodating uh, these uh, residents' needs. Right. And, and if I'm not mistaken, and I think I might have seen it in a different article, not this one, where there was also a comment that the board was afraid that there were going to be more people of this type trying to get in. Did, did you see that one in, in the complaint at all? Um, I don't recall it specifically. Uh, I certainly saw that in one of the other cases we're going to be dealing with. So uh, things showing discriminatory animus. Uh, are never a wise mm -hmm. idea. Um, I'll kind of go back to that. If you have a situation where somebody through their words or through what they've written are, are expressing animus uh, towards a protected class, so saying that uh, we do not want to encourage people from this uh, community or observant people to be coming here, that is showing a, a intent to engage in disparate treatment. Um, they're great facts if you are a, a plaintiff's attorney. Um, who is trying to seek? I can imagine. Um, the place where it can come up, it's kind of, and there's there's case law differences on this at this point, is what happens if this person who is engaging in the 
discriminatory comments is just a regular tenant or just another owner of the property or just another uh, person mm-hmm. in the condo. And, or if it's a landlord and so you have two tenants and one of them is being uh, a jerk to the other based on a discriminatory uh, or a protected characteristic, can the entity be liable for stopping that? And so we've seen some cases that says, yes, they can. And then you've seen others that say, well, no, that you don't have any agency over a person who lives there or is your tenant. So you can't be sitting there telling them what they can and can't say based off uh, on pain of, of federal or state liability because then we might run into an actual First Amendment issue, which is the federal government or state government cannot, through the power of creating liability, um, infringe on somebody's own First Amendment rights by making another uh, private person be the person who does so. So whether that's coercing, and, and we've maybe seen at least that allegation, if not um, great proof of it, in regard to uh, Donald Trump and his uh, recent lawsuits against Twitter, Facebook, and Google, where he's saying that the federal government is coercing these stats or these platforms into doing what they couldn't do individually. Um, which I don't know if he has particularly good proof of that, but in the situation of a Fair Housing Act, where they're saying that you need to do this, otherwise we're creating a um, federal remedy, which includes money damages, attorney fees, injunctive relief. If you don't do that, that actually can now create a um, constitutional issue. Does that make sense? Yes, it completely does. I just wanted to circle back and talk about this elevator that is on Shabbos mode to explain it a couple of seconds. Basically what this is, is this is in the elevator that will stop on each floor on the way up and on the way down. So this way the Orthodox people who are older or not well are able to um, get to their places than you know, if they live on a higher floor. So I just wanted to clarify that, clarify that, I should say. Brett, in your estimation, is this a good case uh, based on the complaint? It certainly looks colorable. Of course, the, the complaint is always, the, this is what the plaintiffs allege. Um, but it would certainly seem to be a situation where if I were the co-op board, I would certainly want to have a much better explanation as to why we stopped allowing the uh, um, attendants to hit the elevator button for these residents or having this uh, the Shabbos mode elevator um, because ultimately that standard is reasonable accommodation and so if you're not able to show any real burden as the co-op board as to it, uh, that's going to be a problem. And if there are comments from the people who are responsible for changing this policy, saying that we don't like this policy because uh, we're afraid it's going to attract more people who are observant uh, uh, Jewish people, that in itself could be a problem that uh, even if they were able to show that it was some sort of undue burden, if you had a bad or a discriminatory animus for why you changed it, you could still be liable notwithstanding if they actually could really show a great reason why this is a a burden. That is one case that's going on. And let's take a look at another case that's going on here. And that is the one that we talked about 
from the times of Israel and women are being in medicine are plagued by discrimination and in this case uh, people wanted Orthodox women are interested in becoming doctors and now there apparently is some discrimination going on because of the fact that they are orthodox so brett take us through the facts of this case a little bit so when i looked at this and maybe i i missed it was i it looked more like a discussion of what are the burdens potentially of of orthodox observant uh, women pursuing this career as opposed to a specific uh, fact pattern of of someone accusing them of of discrimination and there's there's a lot of things going on here. Um, so this is a place where, I, this was, I believe, a New York-based um, article. And so one of the things we'd be looking at here is this is a place where a state law uh, might look different than what the federal rule is. But let's, let's go ahead and start with the federal rule on it, which is uh, Title VII of uh, the Civil Rights Act, which um, prevents, let me find the language on it, it shall be unlawful employment practice for an employer to fail or refuse to hire or discharge any individual or otherwise discriminate against any individual with respect to his compensation, terms, conditions, or privileges of employment because of such individual's race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. And as part of that um, definition of religion, Religion includes all aspects of religious observance and practice, as well as a belief, unless the employer demonstrates that he is unable to reasonably accommodate to an employee or prospective employee's religious observance or practice without undue hardship on the conduct of such employer's business. So this is a law, again, Civil Rights Act out of, uh, in 1964. The Supreme Court case on this, which was decided in the 70s, is... Uh, Transworld Airlines versus Hardison. And uh, Mr. Hardison was a Seventh-day Adventist um, spinoff of some sort. And he was working and swapping shifts so that he could observe Sabbath um, in one building. And then when he was transferred to another building which had different seniority, um, the, he was then put at the bottom of the um, seniority list or near the bottom which made it so he could not bid for um, I'm assuming Saturday's off I don't know if it went um, into Friday long shift I don't recall and so they looked at the and what the Supreme Court said was that the burden for what constitutes a reasonable accommodation uh, is that it only has to be more than a de minimis uh, burden on the employer uh, for them to be able to reject it, um, which is, you know, this is one of the earliest cases on what is a reasonable accommodation. Um, the place that we see it now often is the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act, which was passed in the early 90s. Um, this language didn't really exist before the 1964 uh, Civil Rights Act. So, like, when I looked at... Um, just trying to look for that phrase of reasonable accommodation pre-1964, you get weird 
railroad cases uh, about uh, municipalities trying to force railroads to build infrastructure in a way that, and so the interesting yeah, and so I guess one thing I might like look at this and try and explain it is that this was kind of the court's first crack at trying to decide what was or wasn't reasonable accommodation, and then what's kind of come after it has really undercut um, that definition. But that's the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court tells us when their old cases are wrong. So that is still the um, standard at the federal level is um, that it doesn't appear that the amount of com accommodation that's necessary for religious practice is, is as equal to um, disability accommodation or short-term disability accommodation in the context of, of pregnancy. Um, so, um, anyway, uh, the other place then, of course, to look in, in this case, which is in New York, is New York has its own civil rights law, which is um, in some senses similar, but in other senses is a little bit more descriptive as to these things specifically. And so when it talks about um, religion, which is Executive Law 296, subsection 10, is it says you can't discriminate on the terms of employment based on religion. And then here's my quote starting, including but not limited to observance of any particular day or days or any portion thereof as a Sabbath or other holy day in accordance with the requirements of his or her religion or the wearing of any attire, clothing, or facial hair in accordance with the requirements of his or her religion unless, after engaging in a bona fide effort, the employer demonstrates that it is unable to reasonably accommodate the employee or prospective employee's sincerely held religious observance or practice without undue hurt, hardship on the employer's business. So that sounds a lot stronger. But the same thing that we're running into in Hardison and also in what I'm seeing in looking at some of these nursing cases is it also has this foregoing thing of it saying that this shall not alter or abridge the rights granted to an employee concerning the payment of wages or privileges of seniority accruing to that employee. So when you have situations where collective bargaining or a bona fide seniority system is coming into conflict with um, the employee's ability to observe religious holidays, that's where we're seeing this real tension as a matter of law. And I couldn't refine the case, but I did find one in New York that was talking about uh, a very similar situation of uh, seniority was preventing this person from being able to observe the Sabbath. He was able to swap with other employees. The employer, when he asked them for the accommodation, uh, went to the union and said, can we fix this? Can we do something that so that he can swap out? And the union said, not only are we not willing to change our um, our seniority system, we didn't know that this swapping thing was going on, and in fact, we're going to tell them to knock it off. And mm -hmm. so what the court ended up saying in that situation was, um, well, actually, I'll back up. So the employer says, look, we tried. That was our attempt at accommodation. We couldn't do it. And what this in the court in New York said that was somewhat different than Hardison, the federal case, was you didn't show us that you actually offered anything to the union to try and entice them to change. So we're actually going to send this back. 
and it would be something that's potentially different if you had offered something to the union in exchange for this change to the collective bargaining agreement, and they still said no, but you just saying, hey, will you change this, them saying no, throwing their hands up, isn't enough to show that you met your burden. So that'd be about the only little change I've seen in regard to what New York would say versus what the federal rule would say, all this being a caveat that I'm not a, a New York lawyer. Um, but there were some other things in there aside from observing the Sabbath, if you wanted to go through, that I think potentially touched some different areas of law. Sure, let's go through that. So one of the other ones on there was that showing a reluctance of the employers to hire uh, orthodox observant um, women because of, I guess, the stereotype or cultural proclivity to having lots of children, um, which that's not going to fly in the slightest if they can prove it. So there's a couple of reasons. One, that's not just a... a um, discrimination based on religion, that's going to be discrimination based on sex. It's not going to be a surprise to you that there are also non-observant or people that are not observant Orthodox women who also get pregnant who are employees of places. Um, what? Yes. So uh, That's true? So it would just just as it would be discriminatory to say I don't want to hire a woman because I'm afraid that she's going to get pregnant and I need her working here all the time therefore I'm not going to hire women, uh, that same thing is going to apply in regard to um, it's this person being an orthodox observant woman and thus therefore more likely to have kids. Um, and some of the cases I point to on that is there was a case in the early 90s uh, which was Price Waterhouse v. Hopkins, uh, which had to do with, uh, this is a Title VII case, but it's about sex, was a accountant was um, believed she was being passed over because she was not traditionally feminine. Um, I don't think the the case ever said that she was um, a lesbian, uh, but that was certainly, I guess, the implication on it. And what the Supreme Court said in that case is, if you're stereotyping based on their sexual characteristics as to this is how that person is supposed to act, that is discrimination on the basis of sex. That is absolutely permitted or prohibited by Title VII. Um, and so, and of course, we saw the extension as to this kind of case law uh, recently in regard to the sexual orientation and transgender um, cases uh, that were just recently decided by the United States Supreme Court. Um, that was this term, wasn't it? And I'm, I'm blanking on the name all of a sudden, and I don't know why. Likewise. Anyway, um, and the other case that I point to on this was is a 2015 case, which was EEOC versus Abercrombie, the clothing outfitter, which was uh, they refused to hire a, or at least the allegation was, that they refused to hire a Muslim observant uh, woman to work in their store because they assumed that she would be wanting to wear the headscarf because she wore it to the uh, interview and it interfered with their clothing policy because they want to look it's a clothing store and they want their people to look young and hip and apparently headscarves aren't young and hip or something like that and what the Supreme Court had said and this was an EEOC case was 
wait a second, this person hasn't even asked for an accommodation yet, and you're just saying we're not going to hire them based on their potential future requests for a religious accommodation, which you don't think you can accommodate based on your, I guess, essential clothing policy as a clothing store. And they said that, that doesn't, that's not going to fly. Um, you can't just start assuming ahead of time what accommodation someone is or isn't going to need based off of their religion and thus employ accordingly. So those are the two things that I see in regard to um, uh, just deciding it, it's difficult to get hired, which is it's not to say that this doesn't happen because I think it probably does happen, but it, it's one of those things of how do you prove it. So if you're deciding that you're not going to be hiring uh, orthodox women in the medical field, um, that is absolutely going to be unlawful. And then it's just the question of how do you prove that's what the person was was thinking. Um, the only other thing I saw in there was there was something along the lines of married uh, observant women wearing a wig or a special wig that required some uh, time to... Um, take off and uh, appropriately whatever the ritual is for surgery or something to that effect um, I think that's going to fall into you know a de minimis accommodation um, however I would note there was a case in the 1980s which was um, oh it was what was it it was Goldman versus Weinberger which had to do with a um, observant Jewish member of the military wanting to wear a yarmulke as part of his uh, uniform, which the Supreme Court said, we're not going to require that accommodation, but this is strictly limited to the military context, and we would have different thoughts on this if it were civilian employment, including uh, governmental uh, civilian employment. And subsequently, there's been a statute passed overturning that, saying we're going to let... Um, people wear their religious attire as part of their uniform as long as they're not in active combat or something to that effect. So, Interesting about that, that because I know a couple of people who have went through the first Gulf War, and I'd be interested in talking to them about that and how they were accommodated or not. And, and Goldman was a 1986 case. Uh, I don't know when the statute came into place that... Um, that overturned it. Yeah, possible. Very possible. All right, let's get to that uh, last case, which is, I think, the most interesting. And uh, this is a case that's been going on for a while. It's the town of Jackson Township, New Jersey, and a discrimination case against Orthodox Jews there. I happen to know several people who live in the township, and it really is a uh, production of fecal matter, as they like to say. Um, so, Brett, why don't you walk us through a little bit of this complaint? Well, I, I might actually throw that back to you. So when I was looking through this, okay. I was seeing cases that went back <laughs> to 2014 about ordinances changing to try and prevent... Um, schools from being opened in different residential areas, prohibiting dormitories, which from my reading mm -hmm. of it is an important part of um, observant male um, orthodox um, 
education, that sort of thing. So it looked like this isn't just a here's what the federal government and the state of New Jersey is doing now. It's been a it's been a fight that's been going on for some time, which you might know more about than I do. Yeah, I do know. I mean, a little bit more about it than you than you do, <laughs> probably. But it is. Um, the entire county, which is Ocean County, New Jersey, is experiencing a huge boom of Orthodox Jews. And this is creating stress on infrastructure, on uh, school boards, and everything like this. Uh, the, and it really starts out at the epicenter, which is a little town called Lakewood, New Jersey. And it goes out from there. People have moved out from Lakewood, New Jersey, to these uh, more suburbs, for lack of a better term, and like J like Jackson, New Jersey, Tom's River is another one, and there are others. And these towns are terrified of the Jews coming in and taking over, so they make up these rules that are potentially putting the kibosh on Jews showing up. It hasn't stopped them, and a lot of times they'll do things that are illegal uh, based on the laws and try to fight it out afterwards, but it is uh, something that has been going on for quite a while. So, um, and yeah, that's, that's kind of what it looks like to me, is, and this is another place where we've seen like members of the community potentially advocating in, from a place of impermissible... Um, Thought in regard to if they if the city councils were to act on it, I, I I've seen the in the complaints where it talks about you know members of the community coming up saying we don't want Jews here and then and the council's like no 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 you can't can't say that even if we're going to do the thing you want us to do because that could be used as evidence of discriminatory purpose. Um, so, but these cases are are largely coming out of three spots, which is. Um, federal government makes lets to make a lot of laws and so we actually have a specific kind of law in this situation which is the religious land use and institutionalized per, uh, persons act which says that the government is not going to implement implement a land use regulation in a manner which imposes a substantial burden on the religious exercise of a person including a religious assembly or institution unless the government demonstrates the imposition of the burden on that person, assembly, or institution is in furtherance of a compelling governmental interest, and it is the least restrictive means of furthering that compelling governmental interest. So what it's doing is what we would call in law, we call this is applying strict scrutiny, which says that um, the, it is the burden on the um, governmental entity in the situation to show not only that they are not discriminating intentionally against um, this religious institution or, or group, but that anything that's even incidental in regard to what their zoning is otherwise, to the extent it burdens um, uh, religious uses, they have to show that this is this this zoning is is essential to how we have our city set out, and that there's no other way we can do it except having these restrictions. So. I haven't looked at like a specific case on this, but like maybe you have a situation where you have a port district and some they want to put a synagogue in the middle of the port district. Everything around it is 
warehouses and otherwise, and there's traffic reasons, I don't know. Maybe that's where you run into it. But this is putting a, a thumb on the scale of you're going to accommodate, is what this law says. Mm-hmm. Um, the other claim, uh, one of the other claims we're seeing here is back to that Fair Housing Act is, and it'd be the or otherwise make unavailable or deny uh, a dwelling to that person. So where we have um, these uh, municipal rules on, on either zoning or I think there was some comment, and I don't recall if it was a mayor or just some other member, which saying don't sell property, don't sell homes to the Jewish pe- people if you don't want these things coming in. Uh, again, that's not, not something you want as part of your, your record. Uh, if you're defending, of course, if you're plaintiffs. <laughs> not, not at all. Um, but then even aside from these, let's imagine those state statutes weren't there. This is the one where we're potentially running into an actual constitutional issue, which is, so in early 90s, uh, the United States Supreme Court decides a case called Employment Division versus Smith, which says um, we're not going to, we're going to, if there, the statute or state rule is spatially neutral, we're not going to determine that that violates a person's free exercise. And so in that situation, it was uh, Native Americans over in Oregon who were using ritualistically peyote, who were fired. Mm-hmm. They applied for unemployment, and what the unemployment, well, obviously division said, was that that was a... Uh, lawful basis for firing you, therefore we're not going to extend you unemployment. And so that, that changed, which was a murky law to begin with in regard to what the standard was before that, but it, it was theoretically that uh, the, the state has a burden to accommodate you. So post-Smith, the rule is and was that, you know, facially neutral, no constitutional issue. Well, comes along not too long after that, which is Church of Lakumi Babalu uh, I down in I think Florida versus City of Halea, where the um, this church was a Santeria church and they were wanting to slaughter chickens as part of as part of their religious practices and they put in the city put in this ordinance saying uh, you're not allowed to slaughter chickens within the city and then set out this whole list of exceptions as if you're you know butcher if you're blah 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 all these things that basically and what the court ended up except exactly which was except which is if you're targeting religion then we're gonna even if it looks like it's facially neutral it doesn't say no ritualistic uh slaughter of chickens we're gonna treat that as discriminatory animus that doesn't fly uh and we actually just recently saw another um similar case which was uh, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, which had to do with same-sex adoptions, and we had—I believe it was a Catholic adoption agency where they were not—they um, refused to send them adoption cases, and it had this contract which basically said that you can't—you've got to have an all-comers policy, except for all these exceptions that we say they're not, where you don't, and, and we can waive it. And what the court said was. That doesn't fly. When you start creating exceptions to these policies, we're going to start applying a, a much more thorough review. And so I think what you might say in regard to what's the difference between Church of Lakumi versus Fulton is Church of Lakumi was we can see that it's all narrowing in on this specific thing, and that's really the only thing that's out there. 
that it's everything except religious reasons. Whereas City of Fulton has kind of extended that to say, um, if you're starting to grant exceptions to anybody, you better be darn sure that this is being done in a manner that's consistent with a strict review. And so when you look at what these changes were to the zoning or otherwise, um, you might be running into both a Fulton or a, a Church of Lukumi problem, which is this certainly looks like you're targeting this at these religious institutions uh, that are, tri- are, are schools. Uh, some of them are about schools, um, which I guess one and the same if it's a if it's a yeshiva, right? Uh, is that they're they're yeah. They're, they're parochial, they, they've got a, a schooling element and they've got a, a religious element, and you start putting in these restrictions of you can't have schools in most like residentially zoned areas, well, where do you think schools are, right? And I, I, <laughs> and so and if this is going to make other non-conforming uses, that sort of thing, and, it, and I'll be darned that these line up really well with when people are doing these proposals for projects of, we bought this lot to build a, a school. I think one was Agatha something. I, I don't recall what. But um, so you had these private plaintiffs who were bringing these claims against the township of Jackson in 14, 2017. 2020, the federal government comes, gets involved and says, you guys are going to knock this off under our federal rules, which is religious land use and institutionalized purpose, persons, which both a private person can bring and then also the attorney general office for uh, the United States can bring. So, and that's going to be the same for, as far as I know, every every federal civil rights act, act is that either private people can bring these actions or the Attorney General's office can bring them and say, we're, we're going to enforce this on behalf of the people. Um, same thing with Fair Housing Act. And then in April, the New Jersey State Attorney General decided they were going to piggyback on and say, yes, this also violates our state New Jersey uh, laws against discriminating against creed, uh, creed be equating to religion uh, in a lot of state, mm-hmm. state statutes. I don't, I don't know why they don't just say religion, but creed seems to be the um, most common way. Euphemism? Yeah. So they're all, I mean, generally you're going to have a situation of a private person is going to be seeking relief as to their specific thing. Although you could have a class action or something along those lines where they're looking for more broad general relief. Uh, and then the state is going to be, or the federal government are going to be trying to compel the stopping of that practice. And, I mean, to the extent I can tell on it, I, I don't think the New Jersey lawsuits do anything new that the other ones aren't. But um, uh, they decided that they were going to hop into. Now, has there been a, a response from the defense on this? So... In the, I can't look up state, uh, New Jersey state um, pleadings, uh, so I was able to find mm-hmm. a complaint in regard to what was posted on the Attorney General's website. Um, in the federal case, which was started, I believe, May of 2020, there it has been. And I think in that article you sent me, it said that they would be vigorously defending. Uh, and so... Um, but I was not able to look up the uh, response to the New Jersey Attorney General's complaint, which was filed relatively recently. Uh, but I certainly could yeah. look up the and – it, and it was. There was a response to the federal lawsuit, which doesn't tell us necessarily a whole lot. Because when you're responding to a federal or actually any lawsuit, 
you're generally not going and giving your side of the story. You're going paragraph by paragraph and saying, I admit this paragraph, I deny this paragraph, or I lack knowledge as to whether this is true or false, therefore I deny. Um, some states have different rules. Okay, I, I was just trying to give a fair picture here of what's going on. So, yeah, the, the place where you start seeing a defendant's side of the story in, in the courtroom, or in the court pleadings, is if somebody is moving for a preliminary injunction, um, that, uh, and there was one recently filed in one of the, oh, it was in the, it was the condo case, where they had filed a preliminary mm -hmm. injunction um, to ask the, the condo board or co-op board to stop their practice during the duration of the lawsuit and the condo co-op board's response was is due like this week something along those lines mm -hmm. so there we would be able to start seeing what their substantive defenses are as to what they say the facts are and then of course the other places are um, a process which is known as summary judgment where a defendant or often a defendant it could be either party is saying you can take the facts in the light most favorable to the favorable to the other party and we still win as a matter of law and so that developed through depositions declarations etc and then it becomes the other side's burden to show why that's not right and then the last place of course is trial so um there if it's early in a lawsuit me looking at just what are the pleadings isn't necessarily going to tell me as to what the defendant's position is on things um, because ultimately, as it, when the answers are admit, deny, or I lack knowledge, therefore deny, you're going to take liberal use of deny for bad facts. Um, so in, until you can can go otherwise. So um, and you know, to some of the older cases, I could probably go back and look and see how they've done um, and what their defenses were on them. But uh, I didn't do that before this. No, that and that's okay. And I. I do appreciate every, every minute that you put into the research of this because this has been very illuminating to me and hopefully the uh, rest of the listeners. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's not necessarily intuitive as to, and you can even see it in these three cases that you gave me almost, almost randomly, is there is some crossover on these things. But on the other hand, even though condo board versus city I mean there's things that are unique to them there's um, if this were a public hospital in regard to the observant women there might be different rules in regard to what is permissible in regard to uh, accommodation or, or what they might have to actually require uh, or be required to um, uh, accommodate because then all of a sudden you have this state actor um Part of the employment relationship. It's not just I'm employed by Bob's Hospital. I'm employed by New Jersey's Hospital or you know Town of Jackson's. And so one of the cases I found, like just kind of looking at, at what was the what are the additional rights of a employee who's working for a state entity. And there's not a whole lot on this, but it was a a college down in Texas where um, they, these two employees had a jerk of a boss. And so what they ended up doing was they ended up, like, praying outside of the cubicle when the boss wasn't there and anointing it with oil. And they found out about it after the fact. And I think they, they even said that the reason they did this is they thought the, the supervisor was demonically possessed. Um, 
and I didn't. I don't know if that was just like you know just general the, the you know the devils in them in regard to bad conduct or like whether they literally thought this person was possessed. And so they. I, I prefer to take it figuratively. So they they were. I, I don't remember if they were fired or just subject to some sort of discipline, but they they um, you know challenged it, and the court said we need to have a trial on this because. The supervisor, what the, they were doing this to, wasn't there. This was after work hours. They didn't find out until months later that this had happened. So how could this be creating a hostile environment for this person when it wasn't the employees that were sitting there, you know, sh- you know, showering them with holy water and saying the power of Christ compels you, which would be different than you know these people aren't there, uh, you know, trying to, and we're just we're just doing kind of a prayer to hope that this person uh, is through divine force is uh, is not such a pain in the butt. So, um, I don't know how that would work in regard to this were just a, a state or non-state employee, but, you know, you get into these complexities of a, a public employee has greater First Amendment protections than if there was just been a private employer or private employee, but not as great as if they were just a person speaking in the public at large. So, a lot of crossover can happen on these on these um, uh, things. Definitely true, and this is something that we'll be keeping a watch on, hopefully, as they progress. Brett, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, the official Not a Rabbi podcast legal correspondent, Brett Urich. Well, thank you for having me, Aaron. Uh, anytime. So that is it for our podcast today. Thank you very much. I thank, once again, our guest, Brett Urich, and uh, I will see you next time.